The American POTUS Podcast is a 501c3 nonprofit show supported by listener patriots just like you. To help us keep the program going, please join others around the nation by considering a tax-deductible donation. You can make your contribution and see what exciting plans we have for new podcasts and other outreach programs at AmericanPOTUS.org. Thank you for your support, and we hope you enjoy this episode. On this episode of American POTUS, Harry Truman's election upset of 1948. We've all seen the picture, a smiling Truman holding up the Chicago Daily Tribune's front page with the headline, Dewey Defeats Truman. But as with most headlines, there's a lot of story behind the big, bold print. At the end of the day, it all really came down to overconfidence versus confidence. One side relishing in a supposedly insurmountable lead, the other kickstarting a whistle-stop tour for the ages. One of the greatest upsets in presidential election history, how Harry Truman shocked the world. Next on American POTUS. I'm Scott Brunn. With the help of presidential scholar Alan Lowe, we're opening the book on the men who have held our nation's highest office. In each episode, we'll tap into our nationwide cabinet of historians, authors, experts, and others to reveal the most compelling moments from these extraordinary patriots. Our topic today is the highly contested election bid of Harry Truman, and there's no one better to help us understand it than Zachary Carabell. He's written a dozen books on history, economics, and international relations, including the book we want to dive into today titled The Last Campaign, How Harry Truman Won the 1948 Election. Zachary, thanks for taking the time to join us here on American POTUS. Thank you for having me on American POTUS. Zachary, this is Alan Lowe. Thank you so much for joining us. But before we get to the 1948 election, let's talk for just a moment about Harry Truman. You say that he was one of those rare men who seemed content with himself and with his life. How do you explain that level of contentment and confidence, especially with the harsh political world he inhabited? You know, Truman, for me, is one of these historical figures who, if you scratch the surface, you just get more of what was on the surface. And I I don't mean that in the sense of he didn't have an inner life. Everybody's got an inner life. but there were not a lot of layers between the outer person and the inner person in a way that, you know, in one set of life circumstances kind of makes you content to live your life as your lot unfolds. But on another side, it makes someone, I think, less complicated. And in many ways, Truman represents a kind of archetypal late 19th through mid 20th century American. And the fact that he became president is in that sense much more striking because he he doesn't vibe the kind of person who would become president. Looking at Truman's personality, you're right. It it seems like he wasn't burning with ambition throughout his life to be president. And I I don't think he was. I mean, I'm not sure he was even burning with ambition to become a senator. And, And he... It's funny, right after I wrote this book, this is not a self-touting thing, it's a comparative thing. Right after I wrote this book, I wrote a short biography of Chester Allen Arthur for Arthur Schlesinger's series of short biographies of all the presidents. And I joked at the time that I, I wrote this book on Arthur because somebody had to. And in in many ways, part of what drew me to them is I there are a few presidents, just like there are a few leaders in every country, who 
you kind of look back and you go, wow, that's it's rather extraordinary that they became president given the life they led and the personalities they had. And I don't think it's that Truman was without ambition. Although, to be honest, there's nothing in his 20s and 30s or even 40s that would have suggested that he had ambition for the life that he ends up leading politically. You know, he had the ambition of, I want to support my family, I want to be gainfully employed. And he, you know, struggled through several careers from being a haberdasher to a farmer. But no, he, <laughs> this is not somebody who sat around and was like, oh my God, I've got to be president of the United States, or I've got to be a senior senator from Missouri, or any and all of the above. But then he found himself in these roles, found a certain competence, found a certain facility. And I think like many people thrust into these positions, was like, hey, I can do this. <laughs> I can do it as well as they can do it. Going into the election of 1948, the outlook for Truman's election was not good at all. Could you relate for our listeners what challenges he faced as that campaign got underway? First of all, he wasn't that popular at uh, at the beginning of 1948. His party, you know, the Democrats had lost control of, of Congress in 46, which wasn't at all unusual in the annals of midterm elections, right? We all know that the party in power tends to lose uh, midterm elections, and 46 was no exception to that. It was a pretty solid trouncing, right, in the, in the House of Representatives in particular. It was the worst since 1928. So, he, you know, he didn't have Congress. He was not exactly anyone's first choice to succeed Franklin Roosevelt, who by, by 1945 was a larger-than-life figure, having been elected to an unprecedented fourth term. And as we know, what, what will always be an unprecedented fourth term, because you can't even run that much anymore. So... The fact that he had been president for you know, most of what was de facto as Roosevelt's fourth term meant that he was never seen as having had his own mantle. Um, and then with the loss of the party, that was uh, yet another blow against him. And he hadn't really built up his own independent base outside of the Missouri and Kansas City political machine that had brought him to power in the first place. So most people just assumed he was toast. And most people around him, I think, assumed he was toast and he was running against someone in, in Thomas Dewey for the Republican Party who had been the Republican candidate in 1944 and had done much better than probably most people expected against a, a sitting popular president in wartime. So Dewey was definitely seen much more as not only the presumptive nominee for the Republican Party going into 48, he was seen as kind of the, the heir apparent. And in, in many ways, that was the setup in 48 for Truman. You show that this election was the last one in our history in which multiple political options were debated and discussed in the mainstream media. So if we could for a moment, let's look at those other candidates and start first with Strom Thurmond and the Dixiecrats. Could you summarize how that party came into being and what ideas it advanced? So Strom Thurmond was a, a very popular South Carolinian who later became one of the longest serving members of the United States Senate. He was a Democrat in a way that today's Democratic Party, he would never have been a Democrat, right? He would have, I mean, he eventually becomes a Republican. He switches parties. But Strom Thurmond leads this revolt after the 48 convention, Democratic convention, and essentially is, is the, I'm trying to describe this most acutely, if you think of the secession crisis in the 1830s, where South Carolina tests out states' rights under the leadership of John Calhoun, which then becomes its precursor to the Civil War, 
Thurman is kind of the the 20th century junior equivalent of that, you know, in that believes that the that that the Civil War hadn't actually fully settled the state's rights issue and that it was still within the purview of a state to say, hey, I don't I don't accept this national federal control over, in this case, civil rights and the, the, the proximate reason for the Fisher and the Democratic Party in 48 was the desegregation of the um, of the military that Truman had ordered. And he leads a block of Southern Democrats to create a separate party in, in 1948 called the Dixiecrats. Um, with him as the candidate for president. He'd been governor of South Carolina, I just want to be clear. He, he later becomes a senator. Before we move on to the other candidates, you make an interesting point about the Dixiecrats. Their views, many of them, would today be considered unacceptable by most Americans, I believe. But you say that that movement, the Dixiecrat movement, was a positive way for that group to express its beliefs. Can you expand a bit on that? Yeah, and again... We called them the Dixiecrats. They called themselves the states' rights Democrats. And, and I'm just saying that, like, apropos what I was just saying about this was the, the animating principle really was you should have states be able to opt out of certain federal laws uh, in this case. I think what, what was happening was that many Southern states were kind of reading the, the writing on the wall, even though there was no guarantee that there was going to be massive desegregation. Brown versus Board of Education was still years away and the passage of the Civil Rights Act even more. They were getting the sense that this was coming, right? I don't want to overdo that, but there was clearly a feeling of if we don't make a stand now, this system is is going to be chipped away at this Jim Crow sort of status quo post-Civil War system. But within that, there was also weirdly, and there's always been this aspect of Southern states' rights that was very progressive when it came to economic opportunities for poor Southern working class whites. The states' rights Democrats and Thurmond, who were, by any definition we have today, thoroughly segregationist and racist, right? I mean, let's just, there's no sugarcoating that. But kind of like like um, later in the 60s, right? It, it, they were standing up for the economic inequities, for, for you know, the next generation of rural electrification, for better education and better schools, not for blacks, for whites, but for, for poor whites in a way that we would think of as kind of New Deal, great society, not free markets and government get out of the way. So it was this odd mix. And kind of like what George Wallace, not, not Henry Wallace, who ran in 48, George Wallace, who would kind of take that mantle in the, in the 60s and 70s, you know, this this odd mix of segregationist and progressive. A short break to remind you about the guest resources section of AmericanPotus.com. You'll find more information on our guest Zachary Carabell and his really interesting book on the 1948 election. And while you're online, be sure to like or follow us on Facebook and Twitter so you'll be up to date on future episodes and announcements. Thanks for listening to American POTUS. Speaking of Henry Wallace, the former vice president who ran in 1948 as the nominee of the Progressive Party, what were his main themes and why did he break with President Truman? So Wallace hadn't just been Franklin Roosevelt's third term vice president. He'd also been secretary of agriculture. His father had been secretary of agriculture. He was a a son of Iowa. The irony for someone who ended up leading a 
not just the progressive party in 48, but had some support from the communists, definitely brought in whatever the vestiges of the American Socialist Party had been. He was also increasingly one of the richer men in the United States because he had invented a hybrid corn seed in the early 1930s in Iowa that ends up becoming the dominant strain of corn throughout the entire Corn Belt of the United States. So even as he rails against the inequities of capitalism, he is a major beneficiary from the free market and agricultural seeds. And he really breaks with Truman first um, over foreign policy, not over domestic, which which is a little surprising given that so much of his campaign was much more about the you know the, the nature of capitalism. But he really uh, stands against the the hardening of the Cold War and the ossifying of these lines between the Soviet sphere and the U.S. sphere that that really de- defines the first two and a half years of of the Truman administration. Right, separate from what went on in '48, what happens when Truman becomes president is that whatever alliance between the Soviet Union and the United States uh, against Nazi Germany in World War II quickly morphs into this thing that we now call the Cold War with these opposed economic blocks. And Wallace felt like the United States and the Truman administration was culpable in this. And so even when he was Secretary of Commerce until 1946, he tries to halt this this move toward Cold War um, and is eventually pushed out by Truman and Truman's Secretary of State, James Burns, another son of South Carolina, just like Strom Thurmond Burns was. That's that's how Wallace comes to this. And he then becomes a darling of the urban left and, and that strain of the United States liberal left party that had been the part of the progressive movement in the 1890s, William Jennings Bryant. You know, they, these streams had been there and had been kind of subsumed in the New Deal of agrarian versus rural, of questioning the whole financial elites and whether or not a few people were benefiting at the expense of the many and then seeing the Cold War as the product essentially of, of both military, but primarily of, of kind of Northeastern elites who were leading the country astray. The irony, of course, being that a lot of the people who supported the Progressive Party were also Northeastern elites. He was such a darling of the left, but he ended up getting fewer votes even than Thurman. Why was Wallace ultimately so unsuccessful in this election? Initially, the thought was, wow, the, the Democratic Party is fragmenting. You've got Wallace on the left. You've got the states' rights Democrats on the right. You know how Typically, you would think this would have doomed Truman, right? Because you've got a fragmented Democratic Party, and then you've got a pretty unified Republican Party. They had their differences, too, with a more isolationist group represented by, by Robert Taft in Ohio against the more multilateral international group represented by Dewey. But they still they were functioning as one coherent party. So you would have thought, wow, Democrats are fragmenting. Truman doesn't have this very strong base. Even more reason to think that he would lose and lose badly. As it turned out, the one thing that that Wallace running for president allowed Truman to do was run as kind of a progressive populist who was going to support the farmers and support the heartland and spend money, stand up against the rich and the Republicans but without being able to be accused of being a communist or accused of being a socialist, because he could always point to Wallace and go, you know, there's only one communist or socialist in the race and it's Wallace. And on the other side uh, with Thurman in, in the South, you know, it allowed him to claim more of the 
the non the, the non segregationist center. So oddly enough, instead of weakening him, it it really allowed Truman to claim the center as opposed to fragmenting his base. So in the general election, Truman ran against Thomas Dewey. Can you tell us a bit about Thomas Dewey, how he received the Republican nomination, and what his strategy was in the election? So again, Dewey had been governor of New York, was governor of New York, ran for president in 1944, did pretty well against FDR, all things being equal, um, meaning FDR was a very popular president running by 1944, a, a very successful war with an economy that was that was increasingly efficient in oriented around war production, but that kind of augured well for the post-war period as well. And yet Dewey made a pretty good showing of it. And he was then renominated because the, the feeling within the party wasn't that he had really lost the 44 election. It was more that he um, had overperformed relative to, you know, what you might've thought. And, and and as I said before, there was some contest within the Republican Party, particularly with Robert Taft, um, who was a Ohio-based, you know, had his own power center. So it wasn't that, like, Dewey cruised to the nomination. It's just that he, he was a very strong candidate. The thing about Dewey that's extraordinary, I mean, one, there were a lot of quips about him even at the time as being incredibly stiff and hard to read and... Uh, Alice Longworth, Longworth Roosevelt once quipped, you know, he looked like the little man on the wedding cake because he had the perfect mustache. I even poked what I hope was genial fun at him in the book because there's a, a picture of him and his family taken. I, I don't remember which magazine at the time, Life or one of them. And, you know, the, his idea of of loosening up to show the American people that he was uh, just another regular father with a family was to be sitting around at home dressed to the nines in a suit and tie and all of his kids were wearing suits and ties and they're all like at home playing with the dog. I mean, it didn't, wasn't the most relaxed family scene you could have imagined. It was more like going out to the 21 club and he ran as if he was going to win, right? His, his campaign strategy was more, if you've got a lead, don't squander it than it was to actually engage and that seemed like the right strategy, right? I mean, if, if if your opponent's party is fragmenting and he's deeply unpopular in the polls, the Republicans in Congress are doing everything they can to make sure that none of your opponent's agenda is going to get enacted. And everybody's saying you're ahead. Why would you do anything to mess with that? I mean, I, I understand the mindset, but he really thought he was like preparing for a coronation more than running like an actual campaign. Not to overplay a sports analogy, but it really did remind me of that team that gets a large lead and at halftime changes strategy, plays it safe in the second half, and ends up losing by not sticking to their original strategy. It's really interesting that it just got out of control for him. And and partly why no one realized it is because, one, polling was infrequent and inaccurate. Now, we certainly know from 2016 and 2020 that polling may have gotten better, but it still isn't great. You know, the ability to actually gauge what people think or then gauge what the connection is between what they say they're thinking and how they'll actually vote has always been really, really problematic. And it it it, it arguably was much worse in 1948. I mean, you can you know, we can we can debate ad infinitum what the deficiencies of polling are in our contemporary era, but there was certainly a lot less of it in 48. And once people had concluded by September or so that Dewey was comfortably ahead in a way that was 
unlikely to change. There was also an assumption that by September, people had made up their minds. So there was some of the polling assumptions or public opinion assumptions at the time were that people didn't wait to the last minute. They sort of made up their minds and then they didn't change them. And we know now that that whole presumption is questionable, right? Uh, but that was the presumption then. So you had one assumption that the summer polls were basically indicative that whatever people said in September was what they were going to do. And then because of all those factors that, that Dewey was so far ahead in those assumptions that a lot of people stopped polling entirely. So there was not enough negative signal to Dewey's assumptions. They thought they were ahead. The polls in the summer said they were ahead. Everyone around them thought they were ahead. And there was not enough countervailing information to suggest that they weren't to change those assumptions until really some glimmerings late September and October when, uh, and we can get into this if you want, when sort of the coverage of Truman's campaign and some people on the ground started to say to the Dewey team, you know, Truman's not, Truman isn't running like, nor are his crowds responding as if he's going to lose. Truman's winning campaign strategies are straight ahead, but first, a quick mention about our guest resources section of AmericanPotus.com. You'll find a link to more information on all of our guest experts, including Zachary Carabell's terrific book on the 48 election. Thanks for listening to American Potus. So tell us about Truman's approach to the campaign. What were his strategies and what issues did he focus on? So first of all, I think the most important thing about Truman is not what issues he focused on. It's that he simply refused to believe that he was going to lose the election. And that mattered a lot, right? I mean, he did not run the flip side of, of the, the sports analogy you talked about. If, if Dewey is the, the team that's way ahead and then just tries to cushion the lead or protect it, Truman's the equivalent of someone who all indications to the contrary just assumed he wasn't going to lose. And even when it seemed obvious that he was going to lose. So first of all, when he gets nominated at the convention in the summer of, of 48 in Philadelphia, he kind of, in a, in a gimmicky way, he tries to deflect attention away from the campaign or away from his own record and on to the Republicans in Congress. And he makes this famous speech about them being the do-nothing Congress and and demands that they come back into session, which the president actually can do. He orders Congress back into session at the end of the summer. I'm sorry, at the end of July, knowing that they're not actually going to do anything, but then he can run against them doing nothing. So that was a tactic, right? That's not a message. That's just a we have to pass a bill for better wages or fairer housing. You know, these were these were the themes he had, farmer support, knowing that Congress wouldn't do anything, but at least he could then say, you see, Congress did nothing. And then he decided with his advisors to do what ended up becoming this epically famous whistle-stop campaign, where he campaigned by train from small town to small town to small town and had a, and his, his own car. And at each town, he would go out on the back of the train and the grandees of the town and the band would be there, you know, all these things that are familiar from those movies in the forties. And he would uh, make a speech uh, and the speech would be tailored to the area. Right. So it's so good to be here in Keokuk, Iowa, or it's so good to be here in whatever town in, in upstate New York. 
And he would tailor the speech to kind of the local needs. You know, if it was a corn town, they'd talk about corn. He would create a whole story town by town. Uh, and the press corps would travel with him and would cover it. But they wouldn't necessarily cover all of it, right? So one of the points I, I tried to make in the book, which I think is interesting for today, is that in a world today, you know, even when I wrote the book 20 years ago where the internet wasn't much of a thing, where there was radio and TV, anything you say anywhere is something you say everywhere today. So if a candidate goes to a small town and makes a talk, you know, it's, it's tweeted out or it's broadcast. And so you can't really tailor a message to a community which is why candidates end up making the same speech over and over. In those days, you could tailor your message. And that's what he did. He just very had a like, team of speechwriters who would tailor the message for every single town along the way. That was one of my favorite parts of your book, when you speak about the impact that new media, in this case, of course, television, has had on campaigns after 48. They fundamentally changed how candidates approach running for office. And the other big theme you have is in addition to the positive approach of Truman kind of crafting these messages as he went to small town America, you say his attacks on the so-called do nothing Congress really unleashed with a great amount of vitriol by Truman had a detrimental impact on American politics from that day forward. Can you, can you tell us a bit more about your analysis in those areas? I mean, I'm, I think more critical of Truman than most people in that he learned acutely that negative campaigning works and in thinking he was going to lose really concluded that one of the only ways he could win was would be by sort of punching below the belt which he did with abandon and which he ramped up even more at, at toward the end of the campaign i mean it, it really reaches a, a crescendo in many ways truman who used these whistle stops to take a lot of digs at, 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 at Dewey and the fat cats and the plutocrats and the bankers. I mean, Roosevelt had run on this too, right? The, the money changers in their temples as being the source of the Great Depression and attacking the banks and the bankers in the Northeast. And Truman builds on this really potently. Again, fat cats. And that's what Dewey was about. And they were all going to greedily get rich and, and, and steal from the hard-earned labor of farmers or of unions or working people, themes that we are just as familiar with today and, and Americans would have been familiar from the 1890s. But he also takes on Dewey in ways that are, I think, a little more surprising. You know, Dewey was an internationalist, unlike the Robert Taft portion of the Republican Party, and much more willing to kind of engage the world. But he could be seen, I think, as a little bit of a soft on whether global communism or the, the international system. And he, Truman, uses this as a wedge to really go after Dewey. And at a, at a speech in Chicago, for 25,000 people at, in late October, he compares Dewey to the forces that supported the rise of Adolf Hitler. So he doesn't, he doesn't say, like, Dewey's Hitler. He said Dewey is like those finance people who, like the great corporations and, and the lobbyists, who would have uh, tolerated the rise of Hitler because it served their interests. You know, and it's like rhetoric like that that kind of goes, I think it crossed some lines. And I think at the time it was felt to have crossed some lines, right? You know, it's like, don't play the Hitler card in 1948 and don't play the Hitler card in 2016 unless you really 
really believe this person's going to inhabit that. And, you know, the idea that Dewey, for whatever his plutocratic tendencies were, was somehow like the bankers who supported the rise of fascism in, in Germany, which in 1948, right, that memory was acute. There were most of the people who we would have been talking to in that audience in 48 remembered 1932, 33 and the rise of Hitler. And they certainly had just come out of a war where, where you know, this violent, bloody war against Nazi Germany. In my humble view, right, I'm just one guy with an opinion, that crossed a lot of lines. Uh, might have helped him win, but it crossed a lot of lines. And I think it I think it created some of the conditions for the backlash of McCarthyism under Eisenhower of, you know, where the Republicans were like, look, you unleash this really hateful attacks on us, so we're not going to do much to stand in the way of, of these McCarthyite hateful attacks on you, because McCarthy's primary target was Democrats who were soft on communism, right? He didn't go after Republicans. Jumping back for a moment to your description of post-1948 races and the impact that television had on them and new media, you say that after that time, campaigns became less personal, more generic in a way due to the influence of that media. I was wondering, would you change that analysis now with the campaigns by and against Donald Trump that we've seen in the last two presidential elections? The, you know, it's it's a great question. I've I've been, uh, you know, we all we all wonder how um, subsequent events will change our sense of things at the time. And so, I wrote this book more than twenty years ago, and. I was aware at the time of a certain flattening of the political landscape that I think was a product of the rise of television and the fact that television was the predominant way in which most people experienced or related to presidential elections. I mean, a few people went and go heard a speech, but you know, for most of us, from the 1960s through the early 2000s, television was how you interacted with the, the the national political process and that that had kind of led to a contraction of what was possible because there's only so much you can do on television and you know already cable news was rising by the late 1990s into the early 2000s and and you know the amount of time there's only so much you can say in a four minute news segment so it felt to me like television had contracted political debate in a way that 48 had had seen a real expansion of it between Henry Wallace Strom Thurmond Harry Truman, Tom Dewey, Harold Stassen in the primaries, you know, and that there was an actual debate over the shape of the country that television didn't allow. Your question is absolutely essential, right? We, we've Things have changed a lot since I wrote the book, where you now have not just whatever we call the internet, but all the different platforms within it, from social media to live streaming to different magazines and different writing, where you know, transcripts of someone's speech are instantaneous and, and available where you can access anything that's said. There's a surfeit of information. There might be a, a dearth of analysis or the rather there's a surfeit of analysis. There may be a dearth of good analysis. You know, does that mean that, that whatever that idea that the, the political spectrum had become so narrow relative to the diversity of a country that, you know, is now 335 million people, I think it's a really good question that I, in all honesty, is right now simply a, an open question. Too, too, too soon to know. The past few elections have seen, you know, with Trump and Hillary Clinton and then with Trump and Joe Biden, have seen a massive contrast in worldviews. But I'm not 
convinced that it's seen a massive expansion of actual debate about real issues. It is definitely true that the, the candidates, there was a real palpable failing in the 90s. The candidates have become very tweedledee, tweedledum, like didn't matter if you're Democrat or Republican. That clearly isn't the case the past few elections. But nor is there much in evidence a range of worldviews being debated. And I'm sure we, you know, we could do like 20 podcasts on this. I think this is sort of the question of our age, which is even as the, the, the avenues of information have multiplied, mostly by virtue of the internet and social media communications, I don't know that the variety of, of worldviews really has. So I still feel 1948 had four or five different Americas being debated. And that could be contrasted and then offered up to voters for endorsement or rejection. You know, today we might have two very different Americas being held up, but we live in a country where most people don't fit 100% either two, you know, and, and we don't necessarily have a discussion about the multiplicity of viewpoints. Well, Zachary, it's time for us to give our listeners a bit of a glimpse into the personal side of POTUS 33 with a few short questions. Here we go. Did he have a presidential hero? Someone Truman modeled himself after, especially in his campaign style. You know, the answer is he he may well have, but he didn't. And, I, and I'm not entirely sure who that person would have been. But he certainly didn't model himself after anyone in the way he ran for president. This is not a guy, I think. And David McCullough might know a little better because he really was the biographer who would have like practiced his speeches in front of the mirror. Or if he did, it was just to, you know, make sure he got it right. Unlike Churchill, who, you know, who would sort of spend hours getting his quips right. Do you have a favorite quote or moment from the campaign? I think my favorite moment, I have two favorite moments. One's a quote, one's not. One is the night of the election when Truman's entire campaign group uh, in Kansas City, were convinced that he was going to lose. And when the re- early returns started coming in on the radio, it seemed to verify that, in fact, Truman was about to lose. And Truman didn't want to hang out with all the people in his campaign commiserating and you know, getting drunk and depressed. But he didn't want to do that, not because he didn't want to get drunk and depressed. He didn't want to do it because he didn't believe he was going to lose and he didn't want to hang out with them as they were all commiserating. So he leaves the campaign party, goes to a hotel in Excelsior Springs, which is just across the the Missouri River outside of Kansas City. And at least according to all the oral histories at the time, he gets into bed, has a glass of milk, and goes to sleep. Now, I don't know about you, but when I've thought about myself like running for president and the elections are going in, I mean, I love my sleep as much as, as anyone else, but... I would think that would be one of those nights where you probably stay up, right? You're like, not, we're not going to know anything until like four. So <laughs> I'm going to have a glass of buttermilk by myself and go to bed. And then he wakes up at like 4 a.m. Turns out he's won. He gets dressed, goes back to the hotel. And uh, again, according to oral histories, he shows up in his campaign manager's room, wakes his campaign, or I don't know if his campaign manager was asleep at that point, but like bursts into the room. And so it's like jumping around on the bed and says, uh, I won. So I love that. The other one I thought was great was, um, and, and this one made a little more sense for people who remember the ad campaigns 
from uh, the, you know the latter part of the 1980s, 1990s, where E.F. Hutton's financial advice was was on TV a lot, and um, the the ad line was when E.F. Hutton talks, people listen. Like someone would be talking about tax advice or something, and it'd be a crowded restaurant, and the E.F. Hutton advisor would lean in and go, "You know, you ought to think about buying." real estate and then suddenly the entire restaurant be silent and they'd all be listening and the tagline was when ef hutton talks people listen and ef hutton at the time who had started his eponymous firm wrote dewey a letter in the fall saying this whole running as if you're ahead is is a bad strategy because i can tell you there's a lot more going on in the truman campaign and people are paying attention and he makes this point that the truman is is fighting dirty and dewey is fight is not fighting at all he's just he's acting like it's all in the bag so he's lofty and he's not even he's he, dewey wouldn't even deign to respond to many of truman's attacks thinking that that doing so would it would would make it seem as if truman was actually a viable challenger and and hutton writes in this really intense letter brilliantly said like if you're fighting with a street fighter you can't just say, no, 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 thank you very much. You know, I'll meet you in the ring. You've got to put on your brass knuckles and and go to town. And Dewey ignores the advice. Um, and I just thought it was a really interesting moment. And I just, you know, in in rare moments of cheekiness in the book, I end that by saying uh, E.F. Hutton spoke, but nobody listened. Zachary, it's been a real pleasure talking with you. Where can our listeners learn more about your work and what's next for you? So, uh, like everybody else, I've got a website. It's very creatively named www.zacharycarabell.com. And it has most of the articles I do on politics and commentary. I write a lot for Politico and The Washington Post and Wired and Time Magazine. Uh, I have a, a new book out, which you, you should all buy because, because you should, called Inside Money. Brown Brothers, Harriman, and the American Way of Power, which is a 200-year history of money and how money made America. And there's some stuff on Truman. And that's out in May of 2021 from Penguin. And finally, about four or five months ago, I started something called The Progress Network, which is theprogressnetwork.org, which is a grouping of about 100 idea people, many of whom are pretty prominent, like David Brooks and Fareed Zakaria and Steven Pinker. You can go look at the, the, the list thereof of people who are united in a sensibility that that maybe thing will either go better than we think or that we are fully capable as a society and a people to solve problems even if those are problems that we've created and that we need to pay a little more attention to a constructive future rather than endlessly focusing on on a negative future because focusing too much on a negative future also risks making that true and the future is at least for now unwritten and it's up to all of us to try to write it a bit better. So I would love people to check that out and sign up for the newsletter. It's free. This is not selling anything other than a sensibility that I think would help all of us live better lives. Yeah, that's interesting. Absolutely much needed. And we will check it out. Thanks, Zachary, so much for joining us on American POTUS. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of the American POTUS podcast. If you have a moment, please rate and review the show on the player you're listening to right now. We appreciate every word from everyone that listens and participates in the podcast. 
More information on all of our terrific guests and their published works can be found on AmericanPOTUS.com. And while you're there, we'd love to see your questions, comments, or suggestions for future topics. And remember to like or follow us on Facebook or Twitter so you'll be up to date on future episodes and announcements. Graphic design for American POTUS is by the Thought Bureau. An original music score is by Jonathan Clark Music. Finally, it's our presidential last word from Harry Truman, quote, It isn't important who's ahead at one time or another, in either an election or a horse race. It's the horse that comes in first at the finish that counts. <laughs>